with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phonesis podcast, wherever you are in the world. Uh, Today, I have Dr. Khalil Sicharan. And he is the co-founder and managing partner at DEI Ready, an organizational consulting firm offering an evidence-based and data-driven approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. His 20-year career in higher education has involved leading and advising effective executive operations and integrated strategic planning and delivery. Among his notable achievements, helping launch a new medical school, helping launch a joint Harvard-Brigham Public Health Research Center, and overseeing the planning and development of an institutional strategic plan. Khalil earned a doctorate in higher education management with distinction from the University of Pennsylvania. He holds a master's of public administration from Harvard University, in addition to two degrees from Florida International University. Sir, what other gaps can we fill in? What else do listeners need to know about you? I love naps. I will be taking one after this podcast is over. (laughs) I love eating despite my perhaps thin frame. I uh, enjoy eating and and eating lots of food and tasting new and different types of food. Um, And then perhaps a little bit more about me. Uh, I'm a first generation immigrant. I came to the United States as a child, sort of grew up in the United States. And I talk a lot about hyphen identities, which is actually something I learned when I was in grad school, which is that I like to say all the time, I am neither or. I am the hyphen in between. And uh, it's a really interesting concept because I go back to Trinidad. I'm from the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago. 
and I try my best to fit in and wear the clothes and, and, and pretend like I'm still, you know, a local, I look it obviously. And if I wear the clothes, but I'll go out to a grocery store and I'll get to the cashier and she's like, Oh, where in the United States are you from? And I'm like, really? I was just trying really hard not to, <laughs> uh, to look, you know, a certain path. path. And then also, you know, I'm of Indian descent, so I don't look like a typical American. So living in America is a really interesting um, space. So, I, you know, you don't feel connected in either space. So what you do is you make your own space, which is your hyphen. And then you meet, you have people meet you at your hyphen and stop trying to meet them um, in these, these categories that people put you in. So the, I, I find that to be a real interesting facet of my, my life that I've embraced more recently that I wouldn't have done before. I love that concept, the hyphen. Would you t- say a little bit more about that concept? I'd never heard of it before. Sure. I mean, I don't think anyone ever really prepares you when your family immigrates. You know, my parents, bless them, certainly had the the best um, in their in their hearts and and their and their thoughts for my brothers and I when we moved. But there was no like, oh, you know, we're transitioning to a new country and rules will be different and society will be different. It's very different. For me, as a child, the concept was always about home. So I left Trinidad when I was eight. From eight onwards, home was always Trinidad. Mm. Then I got to 16 and I was like, well, wait a second. I've now spent more time in the United States than I have spent in Trinidad. So what is my definition of home? And those are, I don't know, not easy topics for a teenager, much less a child to have to grapple with. But that started a a long series of, of questions. Where do I fit in? Who do I fit in with? I was sitting in a graduate seminar at, at Harvard and a classmate of mine said, you know, I'm neither or I'm the hyphen in between. And I have to tell you, I stopped wow. paying attention in class the rest of the seminar. And I was just like, mind blown. It's been 10 years probably since I've heard this. And I continue to find new ways to, to just unpack and peel away those layers of the many identities that I think all of us have. You know, mine is my own unique circumstance, but I think everyone has some space where they're like, wow, I'm always trying to be one or the other, but I can never be 100%. So where's my space in the middle? And and then trying to meet everyone else where they are is, is forcing you to almost renegotiate your identity as well. No, meet me where I am. This is the Khalil space. Let's look, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, so you're coming to this work with a very, very unique perspective, worldview on some of the DEI work that you're doing and you're engaged in right now, obviously with your background in higher ed, strategic planning, adaptive leadership, and I'm sure some of that coursework that of course permeates the Kennedy School. As you think about the work in DEI that you're doing, what are some fundamentals or some kind of baselines, some foundations that you, I mean, I love what you just said. Are there others that you kind of enter the space with as you do this work? When I started my organization, DEI Ready, I did it with some partners. So there's, we're fellow, we all did our dissertations, we all did our doctorates at the same time. And we sort of all said, wow, first of all, we like each other. (laughs) That's helpful. (laughs) Um, And we think we'd work well together. And we were all really interested in each other's research. And we sort of said, if we could work together, what would it look like? And so that was almost like a year of us dreaming and building and thinking and playing and really going out. So then what what we proceeded to do, uh, and I probably did the majority of it, was just go out and be curious and be creative. So I would email random people. Hi, my name is Khalil. I'm starting blah, blah, blah. And I'm interested in talking to you about blah. Would you like to chat with me? You know, and uh, some people would just blow you off. Others would be like, okay, hi. (laughs) You know, and you'd set up a call 
And you'd have this like 45 minute, one hour conversation and just talk about anything. And, and I think that was kind of really cool. I don't think a lot of people build space in their lives to do that. So it started more about like, we want to go out and do something. I, I like to call this our intervention in higher education, but also just our intervention in general, because nice. we're not higher ed specific. We cross sectors. And so I was talking about like, if we were to go do an intervention, here's what we're thinking of doing, what would it look like? And then how do we get to where we are? So it starts really with a really interesting survey around organizational culture. So one of my partners who is brilliant did a study where he took a corporate survey that assesses the characteristics of organizational culture that's traditionally used in the corporate setting and applied it in a higher education setting. Oh, wow. What he did is he he looked at, I believe it's 26 or 27 community colleges in the state of Washington, and then he compared their organizational culture dynamics to their statewide performance um, with their state system and tried to see what were the things that you might have expected or things that were outside the norm. And what it showed is that Different cultures and subcultures that may exist can lead to to unintended positive benefits. And so you might expect a culture that you might assume as a leader or someone who studies leadership would be like, oh, this is primed for failure, actually has led to a certain level of success within an environment. And what this led to was us really saying, wow, this could be a really interesting way of helping organizations understand whether or not they're doing special work. And what do I mean by that? If I had to capture it in a phrase, I think of it as almost like a mission meter because you know, my prior institution, I helped write a, a, a institution-wide strategic plan. What was really interesting is we launched eight specific initiatives, just really interesting work. And, and it was really fun to, to sort of play in that space and help design and dream those things. But then, uh, and this is not necessarily tied to my prior institution, it's just in general. Yeah. But then you can ask as a leader, have I put the right people in place for these really important initiatives that I have set aside, I don't know, bandwidth, strategy, resources, talent. Yes, yes. Um, and then you've put someone who might not necessarily appreciate or, or take that work and bring it to the next level. So when you look at this two by two, um, and I'd be happy to share the link to the actual framework from left to right, an organization is either inward looking or outward looking. Okay. And then from top to bottom, you're either creative or very hierarchical. Uh, as you, when you play in that space, the survey, which is a really simple survey tool, creates a qu quantitative analysis of an institution. So a blob shows up and the blob shows where you might fall in any of these four quadrants. What's really cool is you can then say, oh, well, where does the president or the CEO fall? And where does the president's cabinet fall? And where do wow. their directors? reports fall? And where do the um, constituents and end users fall? And then you can take that blob and you can start to play with it and go, okay, let's take everyone who identifies as a manager or not, or someone who makes above 100K or less, or someone who has a direct report or not. And all of a sudden the blob starts to change <laughs> and you start to see there's a president and, a, and perhaps a cabinet that thinks, oh, we're out there and we're doing something really special and we're leading and we're transforming and we're dynamic. And then you go like two layers below and it's like, oh my God, this is not necessarily the best place. Uh, we've got some problems. Our creativity is stifled. We can't, we feel like we're not nearly moving as fast as we possibly could. And yes, then you yes. go back up the rung and it's like, you know, oh my God, we can barely keep up with the innovation that's happening at the institution. And so it begins to show that. And so this tool, we were all the four of us, five of us sat back and were like, this is this is ridiculous. Like this is something that could do really special things if you ask it to. You know, our journey was really about sort of going from there. And then we ended up with diversity, equity, inclusion. And I'll tell you how we got there. So we were thinking about board governance, strategic planning, coaching, uh, post-COVID realities, 
dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion. And then our next conversation in terms of how we might think about this is like, well, then how do you go about building sort of like a consulting firm and putting the principles in place of, of how to effectively do this? And another great colleague of mine, and I will give honor to all the great colleagues of mine who gave good feedback, said, do one thing and do it really well. Because if you try and do 12 things, that's lovely, but you're a startup. You you don't have the bandwidth to do 12 things. And uh, I I talk a lot about the Goldilocks zone and you're obvious and it's different within each organization with the scope and, and what you're trying to accomplish. And so when he gave me this really great feedback, I took it back to my group and I said, well, we should kind of pick and choose. What do we want to do? And what came out of it was unanimously. We all said, if we could do work that had meaning and impact, that sort of took this real cool organizational work, let's do it around diversity, equity, inclusion, which then led to another series of just really special um, discussions with people who were then really oriented around diversity, equity, inclusion, which I think then allowed us to sort of play in the space. You know, and the reality is that none of us have actually ever really done diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's just be really clear about that. But we have always been around it and touched it and been, I don't know, people who carry values and principles of diversity, equity, inclusion. And so we kind of like the fact that we're not necessarily directly from diversity, equity, inclusion. But since we started, which is in the last year plus, I think we have become much more grounded and aware of how diversity, equity, inclusion begins to play. One of the things we learned when we started having these conversations is, there is no real accepted baseline for diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, executive leaders want to talk about DEI. If you ask them, I mean, if you went and asked, I don't know, a cabinet of an executive office, what is diversity, equity, inclusion? You ask them to describe what it was. You would get, if there's 10 people on that cabinet, 10 different answers. Um, And then if you ask them to say, well, what is the difference? And this, I think, always starts people to sort of turn their head to the side. What is the difference between diversity and then equity, and then inclusion, because everyone just assumes it's one blob. And there are three different things and three different definitions. And so if you're a leadership uh, within an organization trying to tackle and approach DEI, and you can't answer those two base things, how can you then lead an organization with this? And so my learnings were really interesting. So one is there's a transition happening across all sectors where diversity, equity, inclusion is transforming from what I call a boutique function to a core function. And that means it's no longer a a nice to have, it is a necessity. And it needs to be treated as a necessity. And most organizations don't know how to do that. Because DEI has been primarily out of different places, making its own standalone place has been a challenge. I almost, as you're speaking, my mind went to digital, for instance, where, you know, tech and digital was kind of this office over here. And now it permeates almost every aspect of organizational strategy, because if you're not thinking digital, you are ripe for disruption. And it almost, to your point, feels like it's moving from an office of diversity, equity, and inclusion to something that's permeating the institution or something that should permeate the institution. Absolutely. And so that's the other thing. Leaders don't know how to have conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, either at the cabinet level or then at their organization. And very few leaders either have the the capacity or or the comfort level to speak about race, gender, equality, inequality. It's I I think many leaders have the the principles and values of what diversity, equity, inclusion is, but they do not have the skills 
or the, um, the headspace to talk about race, gender, equality, or inequality. And so they struggle with having these conversations. And so people who lead diversity, equity, inclusion offices have this gamut of being able to help their leadership feel comfortable with what's going on, the, designing a strategy for what the, the, the institution needs in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and then executing that strategy. And when you go from having to be a boutique office where it's normally like one leader and an admin, basically responsible for the gamut of this work to now being asked to, to be responsible for more of these things, this shift, fundamental shift is what's happening. And so my organization has sort of, has sort of come in and is playing the organizational coaching side. And it's purposeful, the words organizational coaching, because yeah. it includes executive coaching, but it also means helping you stand up your org. What's your org culture? What's your org structure? What's the right org sense for you, uh, for your organization? And then how do you then go about executing once you have that in place? I love the approach. Something I've observed in myself, Khalil, is that as a white male at times, uh, me entering into this dialogue with others can be, it can be scary. It's, I don't necessarily feel like I have the skills. I don't necessarily feel like I have the knowledge. And it feels at times like a topic that can go in very different directions or go south quickly. If I'm not prepared, if I'm not skillful, if I'm not 100% aware of how I could be perceived. And it's interesting because I imagine some of the leaders that you are experiencing, while they might value DEI, if they're a white male, say, do they feel like psychologically they have the skill set? And do they feel like they have the ability to navigate some of these conversations and some of this work? And so I, I love how you are positioning this because, boy, if I was president of a university right now, I would need some assistance in not only the personal work that I need to do, but also how I create space for the work to be done. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it starts with, you know, and there's many layers of complexity here. Yeah. But if I were advising a president <laughs> yeah, that was a white man. I'm gonna I'm gonna name the ep I'm gonna name the episode that there's many layers of complexity here. Because <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it starts with a level of authenticity, which cannot be fate, right? You must be authentic to be able to have these conversations. And if you're not willing to be authentic, I don't think your audience or the people who you're trying to connect with will be receptive. The second is uh, a level of uh, curiosity, which is being able to own your perspective, but also listen intently to other people's perspectives and figure out where you get there. And it starts really with storytelling. Mm. If you notice in the very beginning of our discussion, I shared a little bit about myself that offered some complexity and flavor to both my background, how I think and how I appreciate and view the world which I think now has opened up the door for us to have many um, pathways that we can have a conversation. Storytelling is one of the ways that people connect. So you never know um, what you're talking about and whether someone will be like, well, I have had a similar challenge. And it may not be, well, you know, I'm this eight-year-old Indian kid who trans, you know, um, emigrated to, to the United States. But there's some story of either emigrating, being an immigrant, or being stuck between two worlds, or visiting a place where you, you think you fit in, but not necessarily you don't, and actually both places you don't fit in. So how do you then find your own space to fit in? There are many ways to go do that. And having conversations helps bring this level of awareness. You're brave to, to bring up this question and, and to point it out. 
because I think when you live in a, in a perspective that dominates society and you are then talking to people who live in that same society, but their perspective is not nearly as bright or, or given the chance to show, um, you may not even realize because your own experience has come with this level of, um, for lack of a better word, privilege yep. and, and others may not. And so how does that entail? I mean, I can tell you many stories of where I have had to um, sort of go, okay, uh, this is just how I see the world. And perhaps someone who is a white male might not uh, have that similar experience. And being able to share that allows someone to understand. I mean, for example, soap dispensers. Soap dispensers were created by researchers who happen to be white men. For if you've ever gone to the bathroom, you would never experience this, but they're usually around the color that goes under the soap dispenser. And so if you're a white man, you always get soap. As a brown man, it takes me four tries before soap comes out of a, a automatic soap dispenser. Wow! And um, I have been able to prove this by showing a sponge, which is yellow on one side and usually blue or green on the other. So the yellow, boom, there's your soap. On the blue and green, pass one, <laughs> pass <Really>? two, <laughs> pass three. And then on the third try, you get something and you're like, okay, cool. I mean, it's, it's a simple thing that you do every day in your life that you wouldn't pay attention to, but someone else does. And if you start to unpack the layers of complexity, right, of, okay, so this was designed. The people who designed it clearly were of one type. They designed it and they had only certain test subjects. So when they did the test subjects, that's all they tested it on. And so when it went out to mass society, it did not um, happen. But then you could go back layers like, okay, so then why did the test subjects not, um, were not people of different colors? Um, What's the challenge here that the researchers who were doing this groundbreaking research didn't include people of color as well? And you can just bring back the layers of of how this conversation could be so important and how such a simple act can reveal uh, inequities across society. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you, at least in this last passage, is there's a level of vulnerability. There's a level of curiosity. What else do you talk to leaders about when they're feeling a little anxious or unsure of their skills or as you're helping them become more confident in creating space for, for these conversations and for this work? Many leaders want a playbook. And there is no playbook, right? I tell individuals all the time, diversity, equity, inclusion is unique to your institution. The other piece of it is also that very few leaders have the opportunities to rehearse and learn DEI problem solving skills. Your phone rings usually when there's a crisis. And it's because a bad incident has happened, a bad incident is about to happen, the press is out there, and there's a reputational risk. And it's like, well, okay, well, we can solve that. But then let's go on the system side and figure out how to solve that. But before that, There could have been, with a fully authorized resource diversity, equity, inclusion office, some level of being able to mitigate these challenges because these types of conversations were happening. And um, by that not taking place, you end up with the crisis situation, right? So the chance to rehearse and learn your DEI skills before you get to the crisis stage means that you can perhaps negate some of these challenges before they even become challenges. And I, I think that's a big concern of leaders. The other piece of it is that Once it does happen, now you've got public scandals, risk management, and potential of lawsuits, right? So people are are not thinking about DEI as they do in other places. Like everyone thinks about HR and there's a compliance function and there's all these rules and policies in place. You know, it goes back to our our research when we were starting to found DEI Ready, 
which is that there is no baseline for what is good diversity, equity, inclusion. And so we tried to come in with our own organization and sort of fill that gap. We, d- we took the existing survey and remodified it for a DEI approach. And so we can come in now and assess the DEI landscape at your institution or organization and help figure out whether, first of all, the culture exists that's prime and ready for change. And then second, we also created a rubric that actually assesses your DEI activities. That's another thing. I don't think anyone out there, I mean, there are some um, rubrics that are out there, but I do not believe there is a standard um, rubric that sort of says, here's what good work looks like. And before you can even begin to start making the, the big fundamental changes you want, let's just make sure your core activities are in place uh, and I, I think you'd be surprised how many people would then fill out that, that activities rubric and sort of go, mm, okay, we, <laughs> we need to just get our foundation set before we can now play in, in the big spaces. Tell me a story, if you would, about some of your work with a specific organization where this has kind of been the case. So obviously you're not saying the name of the organization or any details about them, but I, I'm fascinated by this because you you present to them this rubric and you say, hey, okay, just do, just do a quick self-check. <laughs> and all of a sudden it becomes super clear, right? Because, so it sounds like, you know, do we have leaders who are vulnerable and open? Do we have leaders who are curious? Do we have leaders who are willing to open up their organization to say, hey, yes, we want to look in the mirror. Tell us a story of, a, of an engagement that stands out for you. So I can I can offer a peppering of engagements that might be interesting. One that comes to mind is I spoke with a leader and, and then had a number of conversations who held four roles. They were the institution-wide diversity, equity, inclusion leader. They were the vice president for compliance. They were also the leader for their health system, and they were the associate dean for uh, minority affairs within their school of medicine. You know, I sort of said to him, I said, you've been put in in this uncomfortable position of trying to do four jobs at the same time without enough resources to do one of those jobs. And anytime something fails, what your leader's basically done is said, if anything fails, they point to you and go, well, you know, you're supposed to have discovered I'm, I wash my hands and I absolve myself of responsibility. This person made the really difficult decision to actually give up two of their four roles and put the onus back on the institution and say, you know what, you're not going to use me as a as a person to come in and just sit and hold a spot, like actually invest and do the work. Yeah. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. And this, this yeah. also speaks to the fact of like, well, we'll just group everything together because it's all one blob. And, you know, you'll be responsible for all these pieces because you own all four of these pieces. Everything will just resolve itself. Actually, that's not the case. So when you sit there with a rubric and you ask, are there clear lines of reporting? Are there clear lines of ownership? You know, um, is there a budget? Well, not even just budget. You know, like, is there a clear strategy? You know, what if the compliance officer was was working with something that was counter to what the the institutional wide diversity, equity, inclusion office was supposed to be doing? And what if they're the same person who negotiates that argument when that challenge is there? Um, another institution I've spoken with and worked with directly. They have this is a large private institution has nine DEI units, like they're all spread out. But they have no centralized diversity, equity, inclusion function. And what's really interesting is good work is happening across those nine offices, but there's no coordination. And because there's no coordination, the institution overall is suffering. Mm -hmm. I often talk about what is that connective thread? Are they all working towards the the same shared common purpose? The reality is they're not. They're sitting here with their own molehill trying to figure out how to each protect their resources 
and have their own space to, to shine without perhaps thinking about the ultimate purpose, which is about creating a sense of belonging at this particular institution and how that happens. And so that in itself is, is, is a challenge. And, and there's more complexity there. This institution, I think, has a board that is not willing to engage with and is interested in diversity and inclusion. I think those words alone cause problems. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's not an easy solution. And, and how do you begin to do that? You know, and I've tried multiple times, multiple ways to sort of navigate this discussion. The best I could do was was from an org perspective was, was design and, and think of a structure that, that took the core leadership and said, well, then you can't hide. Stop pointing the figure down. So all of you need to sit in the room together and you collectively. And so it's almost like the concept of instead of one person, it's a DEI, it's a DEI compass. And so it's not one person, but there's a group of people who serve as the moral compass for diversity, equity, inclusion. And they make sure that the institutional leadership is owning it, as opposed to saying, oh, I point to one person or I point to these nine units and go, well, you nine units should be taking advantage of it. No, who is our overall diversity, equity, inclusion compass? And so it's not one person, it's a group of people, but that hierarchical group of people serve as the DEI compass. And then there's nowhere for, for these groups to hide because What's interesting, of course, in large organizations that those nine units are spread out across multiple vice presidents, and each of them is protecting their own space. So yep. if you put all the vice presidents in a room and say, ah, you all have to have a conversation around this now, you're essentially forcing those vice presidents who might not want to play to realize they do have to actually play together. Yeah. Well, and I imagine there's some institutions that you've come across that, that to your point, they want to prioritize DEI. It's a it's a it's a thing they value. They don't know but, how to do it. <laughs> yeah, but then it goes up and it starts competing with all of the other competing commitments within the organizational within the organization's priorities. And to your point, it gets relegated to an office over here in this hall or in this part of the the business, and it doesn't weave throughout the fabric, right? But I, I think also. 2020 showed, you know, multiple sides of our society. The events of 2020 led to increasing calls for racial and social justice. And it's not going away, right? This is like, I talk all the time, (laughs) I have a toddler, and I talk all the time when we get to the meltdown stage, you know, and I go, this didn't just happen. This was death by a thousand cuts. Like this was the (laughs) 1000 cut that led to, you know, I'm on the floor and my legs are flailing. Um, And so when you talk about the calls for racial and social justice, this is death by a thousand cuts. Uh, In some cases, literally, unfortunately, right? Because we've seen what's happened. And there's only so many times you can parade out an, an unfortunate name after unfortunate death before the collective sort of goes, wow, this is not just a series of one-time incidents. This is a series of, of connected things. Those calls are not going away. And so if you are a, an organization that is behind, you're missing out, right? You're talking about the innovation in tech and the being able to ripe for disruption. Think of the same thing in higher education. Talented students. And by the way, you know, the 2020 census data has begun to show that the United States of the future is a majority minority institution. If you don't have a campus that is prepared for and willing to receive a majority minority student population 15 years from now, 10 years from now, because it's already moving in that direction, where is your campus? The best and brightest students, where are they going? They're, they're going to choose another campus that, that gives them the chance to feel a sense of belonging as opposed to yours. And same with corporate America. If you're not building in in your work and place environment, 
and or how you deal with your your constituents and your consumers, you're going to lose out on potential people who want to purchase your products or use your services. And so it's the trans the transition from a boutique function, nice to have, to basically if we don't have this and we're not doing this with a real sense of of openness and authenticity and curiosity, we're going to be left behind. Very well said. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I was thinking when we when we agreed to do this podcast, how my own journey of leadership has really helped me along this way. So I'm a huge fan of alliteration. And when we do our work in our in DEI Ready, we talk about three pillars, diagnosis, design, and delivery. What's really interesting about this is I have taken sort of three leadership um, tenets and brought it to the forefront. So one is the adaptive leadership framework, which I, I took. I did not take Ron though I know he's been on your podcast, as has my, um, my, my classmate, Rio. But I, I took Ron for a J-term. I actually went back and, and sat in for two weeks and had a very emotional roller coaster. Yes. <laughs> That's what I would say. Yes. Anyone who's taken uh, Ron's J-term course, you don't leave that without some battle scars. You do in the, in the, in the, in the fall and spring. I took Dean Williams, um, who is also an adaptive leadership leader. And uh, it was just as painful. Uh, I don't think it matters who you take it with. You still come up with battle scars. And the second is positive deviance. Uh, oh. I don't know if you're familiar with that framework. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Happy to share about that as well. And then the third is a framework called deliverology. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about all three and, yeah, and, please. and why I think they're special and how they integrate to my work. So, you know, adaptive leadership, um, this is actually a phrase I, I remember Ron saying, change equals loss. When you are in a position of authority, and there are people who are coming after your leadership and your position of authority. Giving up your leadership and, and your authority represents a sense of loss. And so you talk about leaders who struggle with trying to figure out how to do this or, or being based in one environment. When other voices speak up, other factions, if you use the adaptive leadership term, come up and start to speak, and they're not focused about, about the work of the center, but more focused about where they sit as a faction and what their power is as a faction. It is an interesting case of being able to help these leaders understand the value of different perspectives and, and how it happens. And my own story about adaptive leadership is quite interesting. I walked in there thinking, oh, I'm never going to fail again, because this is a course that forces you to look at a, a major leadership failure. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get all the skills and tools, and this is never going to happen to me again. And it allowed me to have a better relationship with failure than yes. I, I've come to since appreciate. So I actually think um, adaptive leadership framework is really about how to fail better. Yeah, and you're, how, running, you're running experiments and experiments fail, but are we failing quickly and are we learning and are we moving forward, right? Yes. And so yeah. the work of diversity, equity, inclusion is about failing all the time because you are trying to figure out what is my community? What is my system? What is my environment? What is my unique DEI instance? Because you can't pick up something else and just drop it in. Uh, and that leads to positive deviance. And also the ability to talk about failure and to speak about loss and speak about hard conversations and to, to disrupt equilibrium, but do it in such a way that it's not so disruptive that everything falls apart. But there's a healthy dynamic that allows this openness and transparency for these types of conversations that many in the community want to have happen, but they're not in the positions of power, right? Yep. They're not the, the scientists who are studying how to do soap dispensers, but they're trying to figure out why it's happening to them when they put their hands out to get soap. 
Yep. And so that's a, um, adaptive leadership, I think, has played a really interesting role. And so when I think about a, um, executive coaching and doing leadership retreats and facilitating these types of conversations, it's a great resource to, to make your, your cabinet or your president a little bit uncomfortable or your board. But that uncomfortableness leads them to a space that sort of says, wow, we have not been paying attention to this really core cool thing. And if we took advantage of this, it would add, you know, I often think, talk about things in tapestry. What if you only had one series of threads? You just have one, you know, color block tapestry, but you add all these other colors in and then you get the chance to make these patterns and see where they lead you. And what can come out of it is beautiful art. And that's yep. how I think about it when it comes to this. Yeah, yeah. The concept of positive deviance is a story I love to tell. I did not realize I've been doing this all my life and, uh, <laughs> uh, and then was like amazed when I, I got the chance to see it. And I'll tell you a really funny story. I actually attended an adaptive leadership conference and uh, one of the authors, Richard Pascal was there. And for me, it was like meeting a rock star because I oh, sat yeah. next to him and I was like, oh my God, you're Richard Pascal. And <laughs> I read your book. It's my framework. I do everything I do. And he was like, okay, weirdo. But by the end of the day, we were friends and we were chit-chatting and I was like, this is so cool that I could you know, get the chance to meet him and, and also just share how much his work has impacted what I do. So the story of positive deviance is really interesting. It starts back in the 1990s, where there was a, um, a large grant in Vietnam trying to understand and research BMI in small children. So what huh. they found in Vietnam was there were pockets of children that had healthy BMI, body mass index, and there were pockets of children that had low BMI. They were all in the same region, but no one could understand why. And huh. so, you know, they got these brilliant Ivy League public health researchers and gave them, you know, multi-million dollar grants and sent, sent them into Vietnam and go figure out what this is. And they went and they went and they went. It really, they really struggled to figure out what the problem was. So what they did is they decided to send observers into the families that had children with normal BMIs. And then the families with children that did not have normal BMIs and just observed them for a period of time. And they tracked everything they ate. And that's when they figured out, here's what the problem was. And what it showed was in Vietnam, which is a a lot of low-lying land that has lots of water. um, So they have lots of vegetables, lots of rice. That's the majority of what goes into the meals. The difference was shrimp. Okay. Shrimp lives all across these. Some households included shrimp in their meals, and some households did not. They were purely vegetarian. You think, oh, the problem is solved. Great, we're, we're done. This is where the positive deviance comes in. No, it was not. Because the public health researchers were not in and of the community. So they waltzed in and said, I decree <laughs> to the It's the shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> Solved. This is what you must do. And they were like, say what? You know, they were like, no, this is not how we're going to roll. And they were like, thanks. But you, you know, you can take that shrimp and go someplace else. How they ended up finding success was actually they had to take families from the villages that did have shrimp and bring them to the villages that did not use shrimp. And they did demos. And so they allowed the, the families to see someone else look like them to show them like, here's how I prepared the meal. And now you can try it and your kids can try it. And they solved the problem that way. Positive deviance. What, one of the things I like about it, which is why I think it's so special. They begin to ask the question of what is not working? So what's obviously not working is that there's a, a segment of the population that is not maintaining a normal BMI. And then they start to figure out, okay, well, what are the deficits? What are the risks? 
And then they then start to identify, well, what is working? And so in this instance, what they did is they went and looked at the population that did have the normal BMI and sort of said, well, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that the others are not. And so it's looking at homegrown solutions or, or what I like to say, elevating ideas institution-wide and amplifying them. And then it's bringing it back from a social side, which is that the, uh, the adoption of the work must be of the community. Yeah. So it can't be someone who comes in from the outside that comes in and says, um, go do this, which is the irony of me being a consulting firm that comes in from the outside to help people. <laughs> but what I respect about how you couch it and situate it is you say there's no playbook. We have some, we have some principles. We're going to, we have some tools, we have some diagnostics, but generally speaking, you're going to to go back to adaptive leadership. We're going to hand the work back and say, okay, what are you going to create, right? right? How is this going to work here so that it is homegrown, so that it is, is real and that it does have a greater likelihood of taking root? So Absolutely. adaptive leadership, positive deviance, and then what was the third? Deliverology. This is a really interesting piece. I learned of this, I would say about seven or eight years ago, when Tony Blair took over as prime minister in the UK, he created a new ministry called the Ministry of Delivery. Hmm. Its sole function was to measure and assess the other ministries because all the other ministries, you know, have their own body of work, but they work independently. And as we've seen in the last couple of years, prime ministers come and go in the UK. <laughs> they can come and go, you know, <laughs> over a period of weeks or months or, or decades. But, you know, um, what happens when the apparatus needs to continue and have some sense of stability? What he tried to then do was say, well, if I'm going to do this, let's do this right. And as one of my colleagues said, this has been going on in the United States government for quite some time, but obviously yeah. because it's British and they have a beautiful accent, it's what made it the, the real special moment that, that turned into this book. And it's Sir Michael Barber, okay, who was the, uh, the head of um, the, this initiative under Tony Blair. And what they then did is they asked each of the ministries to come up with uh, annual and multi-year goals. Huh. of what they did. To me, it's a lever. It's a, tech, it's a technical lever that you pull if you use adaptive leadership language, but there's adaptive thought into what goes into the data and the measurement you're trying to collect. And then there's adaptive work in the, the post feature, which is that the way it works is you then have a regular convening of everyone who owns this, um, this measurement and this data, and you do it together. And it's in, in many cases where no one can hide, right? Because mm. everyone who would be there, these are the, the other ministries are all there. And you can't be like, oh, well, we couldn't finish our work because this ministry didn't solve it. Well, ministry so-and-so, you're over here. <laughs> can we speak to why this took place? And what it does is it goes back actually to the survey, the, the determinants of organizational culture, and whether you put the right people in place, yep. right? Because now you can basically say, hmm, Here's Judy again. This is the fourth time we've had a meeting and Judy's unit is not either working collaboratively or um, being proactive or working collegially. And so how do you then navigate? You then are informed and empowered to make a decision. So when you do this in the context of our work, think of, for example, the institution that has nine separate DEI units. What you then do is you actually create an institution-wide diversity, equity, inclusion dashboard. It might not include all of the work happening in those nine units, right? It's the institutional series of purposes, but they're all collectively moving towards the direction of what those core institutional targets and metrics are. 
while they then also have their own unit specific things that they're trying to talk about. <clears throat> well, it's like you have you have that again, that North Star, the compass, right? Because we all know that we're moving in one coherent direction that's building up to the whole, right? Yeah. And so when you do this and everyone is meeting on a, on a quarterly or, or monthly basis, it's a simple of it's yellow, green, or red. And if it's green, was the ambition bold enough? Can we raise it? If it's yellow, what are the barriers to this turning green and how can we solve it with everyone in the room? And chances are, if we're all thinking about this from a similar thematic area, in this case, diversity, equity, inclusion, we're all dealing with similar challenges, right? So you're, you're accelerating and eliminating roadblocks. You're accelerating good ideas and eliminating roadblocks that are happening when this is taking place. And then the third case, if it's red, hmm, is this a case of you chose the wrong metrics, you have the wrong leader, or this is not part of what the community was really looking for when we set out to go do this. And it also, to one of the points you brought up, I think earlier, brings institutional perpetuity, right? This is not uh, individual-based leadership. So a DEI leader might come in and a DEI leader might leave, but this structure and system is in place and yep. what then the big challenge then is how do you then constantly update it and monitor it and refresh it, yep. right? So you might have a multi-year plan and what happens in year two and a half or year three, because you're, as your community changes, so will what you determine to be your DEI metrics will change as well, because they should hopefully improve and you'll find new ways to, to continue adding a sense of belonging to a community. It's the concept of diagnosis, design, and delivery, where the diagnosis side is coming in with this level of curiosity from adaptive leadership and also positive deviance, um, thinking about the organizational culture study, then going to the design stage, where again, you're going back to the positive deviance. When I worked on the strategic plan for my prior institution, I asked two questions. I, did a, I created a six-question um, qualitative survey, but I asked two questions that brought a breadth and wealth of information. One was, what are the barriers to success? Hmm. And what came out of it were the same three to four units, the same four to five names consistently, yep. um, which is not a surprise, but it, it showed that. And then I asked the second question, which is, what are the hidden stories? Hmm. What's the good work that's happening that we don't know about? And then how do you take a lever and take that from unit to institution or organization? And where and and what? How does that special idea or concept can be brought out? And you think about that same with the DEI work, right? Yeah. Who are the actors who are preventing or stopping or stymieing a sense of cultural belonging at the institution or the organizational level? And, and how can we identify them? Because when I speak to DEI leaders, I ask, I go, "You already know the five names of the people who cause you trouble. And they smirk and they laugh, but they're like, but what if I could give you a quantitative way to show these are the people who are behaving like this? Yeah. And then what if I could also add to the flavor of the work you're doing because you're you're a one-person wrecking crew and say, there's good work already happening. Just elevate it. Take it from, you know, this one person and how do you then get it to be institutionalized? Because then you build these ambassadors. Your ambassadors are already built in. Yep. Uh, and and it offers a lot of, of great work, right? And so you get to the, the design stage and you're already coming in with what you might need to um, highlight and what are some of the things you might need to respond to. 
Uh, and so that's a lot of fun, especially for me. I, I'm a creative person, so I, I just love digging in and, and thinking about that. Um, and then the third, of course, is then making sure it stays for institutional perpetuity. It's not a fly-by-night operation. Like we didn't just do a plan and make a nice glossy brochure and fill it up with stock photos because I abhor stock photos. And then you know <laughs> you release it, and then you know the next three years you just release the same um, brochure. Like no, yeah. let's make meaningful change. A colleague of mine says things should be meaningful measurable and movable. And so when you get to the delivery stage, that's what you're thinking about. You know, again, I love alliteration. And so the institution should be able to, you should be able to walk away and go, you don't need me anymore. I'm happy to come back if you need me, but you know, you're on your own. Good luck. And we'll call us if you need us. And that's the goal, right? I mean, that's how you know, as a practitioner that you've done good work. You know, I have, as we begin to kind of wind down our time, Khalil, I I just have so much respect for the work that you're doing. I love how you're approaching the work. I love the theory behind how you approach the work. And I think it's so much fun because it's one thing to sit in Dr. Heifetz's class and kind of have that experience in a J term, but to bring that out into the world and some of these other theories out into the world and see how they, how they work in the wild to use them to help inform. And again, you're not providing them with a playbook, but providing them with some principles and some ways of thinking so that they can build their own playbook back to the, to the research in Vietnam, right? Helping those families develop a playbook for themselves so that they can make that change lasting and long-term. I love it. I always ask, as we close out these conversations, what you're listening to, reading, streaming, watching, something that's been on your radar recently that caught your eye, it could have to do with what we just discussed. It may not. So what's caught your attention in recent months? You know, I read voraciously. I can tell. I guess we can. I read when I get up. I read when I, when I, 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 I go, before I go to bed, I'm always reading. Uh, I'll speak about one of my favorite books. It's called The Tao of Pooh. And it makes you look at the universe from the lens of Winnie the Pooh characters. Yeah. And when you, when you read it, you're like, oh, this is ridiculous. But I actually um, discovered this book in high school and wrote a paper on it, which was a, a complete flop. But that's a different story for another day. <laughs> My professor was like, you're trying to be smart, but you're really not. And so, you know, take your C plus and be happy. Um, Meanwhile, you with your degree from Harvard and Penn now had the last (laughs) laugh. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Milton, for that gracious nudge. But what it basically says, it's it's the back of the cover. It's like, while Pooh pontificates, Piglet um, is too scared, Eeyore is too negative, and Tigger is off, you know, having a party. And and so you can actually look at the people you meet with um, on a daily basis and realize that they have aspects of rabbit. They have aspects of Piglet and Pooh. And that's actually really interesting to understand, like, just core uh, personality traits that really help you figure out how to work with them. And so it's a great read. It's a really short read. It's really, it's real Winnie the Pooh comics that they then have this whole Taoism in the background that I think just adds a a level of complexity and flavor that it's been over 30 years and I still read it every so often. I love that book. Oh, that's awesome. Sometimes taking very complex concepts and distilling them down into uh, Winnie the Pooh, that's a, that's a work of art. That's (laughs) I think it was Jobs who said, you got, you have to get your thinking clean, right? Getting your thinking clean. And, and that sounds like it's 
someone who's gotten their thinking clean. <laughs> I do a lot of infographics um, where I take really hard concepts and I bring it down to like, you know, yeah. a picture and with no words. I try to use a lot of less words and put this as a, a, even word clouds. When I work with leadership teams, I ask the question, what is diversity, equity, inclusion at your institution? And then I put it up and it's always 15 different responses. And there's always, it's a surprise Pikachu face. Like, <gasps> you know, like that's not <laughs> us. And you're like, mm, actually, it is. It is. Let's, you just let's, told me. <laughs> let's, let's, let's now unpack that and, and see where that takes us. <laughs> well, Khalil, I hope you will come back and we can continue the conversation. I can learn more about your adventures and, uh, and the good work that you're doing in the world. It's just been such a pleasure to meet you, to connect with you. Thank you so much for stopping by. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. Well, be well. You too. Bye. Thanks to Khalil for that really powerful conversation. You know, he said something that really stood out. Leaders don't know how to have conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion at the cabinet level or the organization level. Very few leaders have the capacity or the comfort level to speak about race, gender equality, and inequality. So there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for A, those leaders to prioritize building that skill set, working continuously on their own biases, their own perceptions, their own way of being in the world. But then also, uh, how do we have those conversations effectively with others? If you are an individual doing this work, there is an opportunity to help ensure that your leaders are prepared and skilled to have these conversations, whatever type of organization you're in, whether it's a family-owned business, whether it is a for-profit organization, an NGO, or an institution of higher education. So I have great respect for the work that Khalil and his associates are doing. They are helping to prepare leaders to engage effectively in this work. It's a mindset, it's a skill set, it's a knowledge base, and it's a whole heck of a lot of personal work for every one of us. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Be well. And as always, thanks for checking in. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.